Activate program. More than our share of the nattering nabobs of negativism. Well, I'm not a crook. I'll never tell a lie. But I am not a bully. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson in California and Rob Long in Amsterdam. I'm James Lilix in Minneapolis, and our guests today, Bob Costa from the Washington Post, Rick Wilson, Republican strategist. We'll be talking about 2014, 2016, and beyond. Let's have ourselves a podcast. Yes, everyone, welcome to this, the Ricochet Podcast number 214, brought to you by Encounter Books. Our feature title this week is Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes by Michael Rubin. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but in the meantime, uh, you can get this book or any Encounter title for 15% off the list price by going to EncounterBooks.com and using the coupon code RICOCHET at your checkout. And speaking of things that bounce around the world, here is a, a rarity, I believe, an intercontinental member pitch by Rob Long in Budapest. Or is it passed? <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can pitch membership to Ricochet in, in all the continents. Uh, James, thank you for asking. Um, what is Ricochet? If you are listening to this podcast for the very first time, we are thrilled to have you. Welcome to the Ricochet podcast. Welcome to the Ricochet community. If you are already a member, hey, welcome, friend. You're a member like the rest of us, and we're pleased to have you. Um, if you'd like to know more about Ricochet.com, please go to Ricochet.com. That's the sponsor of the podcast. That's the thing we're all talking about. That's the fastest growing, wittiest, most civil conversation on the web between and among our members and our uh, contributors. So it's a great place and to unlike- uh, start a conversation, get into a conversation and to – go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I thought you'd cut out for a moment there. I was just going to say, you know, you may go to this side or that side to read commentary and, and, and argue with people in the comments, but rarely will you have a site that puts together a community that results in people getting together in barbecue restaurants in Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> I was going to gonna sh- ask. To share How their membership. That? Well, I'll tell you briefly because I really want to get to why you're in Pesh and bring Peter in here. And Peter, you are here, right? I am here, but I have Good. nothing interesting to say by comparison with Far Fargo and distant Budapest. <laughs> well, when we were talking about the site and, and everyone was applauding 2.0 and the, uh, the single format and the rest of it, uh, when Peter's name came up, I just noticed that people's hands sort of automatically and subconsciously drifted to their neck as though to pat reassuringly a knotted sweater. <laughs> uh, it was, it was great. community. That's absolutely right. It was great fun. We did indeed meet in uh, at the famous Dave's Barbecue in the in in West Fargo, not Fargo proper, proper but West Fargo, and just uh, talked stuff. And it was grand. Apparently, some ricochet meetups are full of contentious, interesting, vivacious political discussion. I kind of like just talking about anything but with these guys, finding out who they are and all the things they do. Here's a couple of guys like Whiskey Sam and, uh, and uh, his, his relative who go around the country and I believe what they do is they, they run this, they create, manage the software for fabricating plants, which is a job that you never think of existing and then you meet the guy who does it and you learn all about what's required there. I mean, think of that. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, exactly. I mean, if you've got a tractor factory in Fargo and they have one, 
uh, there has to be some sort of software that runs the robot right. arms, that runs the stamping things. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so it was great fun. Now, Rob, you're in Budapest or Pesh, which, which is – Well, I mean neither. I'm actually in Amsterdam. I flew to Amsterdam, uh, hmm. I guess, last night. Landed this morning around uh, noon hmm. and now it's 5 o'clock. So at some point in this podcast, I'm going to stop making sense uh, if anybody would notice that. So you, uh, you landed it's at been a long, sh- long day. Schiphol uh, Airport. Schiphol. The- yeah, you know, I lived – Schiphol Airport. I lived here. Uh, I lived in Holland when I was a boy, so I, I, I uh, speak a little bit of Dutch. I, I actually really? bluff. There I can, really is no can, bottom to you, Rob Long. No, there isn't. I can bluff. I can bluff Dutch. And <laughs> the problem is that I have a pretty good accent, and I can say like, you know, I'll have a coffee, or uh, you know, the newspaper, please, or you know, please take me into, to, you know, get into a taxi, and then then comes a torrent of Dutch, and right. uh, I don't. What? That's too much. And no one, no one can really believe. It's not like French where they sort of believe that, OK, well, you know a little bit of French. Everybody knows a little bit of French. Um, in, in, in Holland, they're so shocked that anyone knows any Dutch. They assume that if you know – why would you only know yes, a exactly. little bit of Dutch? You know? <laughs> Fluency in Dutch isn't all that helpful. Why would anybody and, learn a little? Right. And, 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 and the thing about Dutch is it sounds like kind of Game of Thrones English, you know? <laughs> like – I know, Early I, I've English. always felt it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you old Dutch so. bluffer, where are you staying in Amsterdam, that lovely city? I am staying – you know, there's a um, fantastic hotel in the little uh, – in the canal district called uh, the Dillon Hotel, D-Y-L-A-N, and it's spectacular. It's really great. And it, it used to be – it was a kind of a, a fashionable thing in, in Amsterdam when I was a kid for – uh, uh, hotel uh, hotels to sort of buy uh, five or six, you know, those tiny little narrow Dutch townhouses together and sort of, you know, connect them all. And uh, this—that's what this one has done too. But it's done a really cool job. So I'm in kind of a weird loft-like. Uh, it's very Dutch, modern Dutchy kind of thing, you know, where everything seems very um, both practical and um, and well designed. Well, it's Rob, a beauty, it, it, Rob, I know you, and I know I know you are your gastronomical tastes. What is it that you're looking forward to eating and to drinking in Amsterdam? Well, you know, not much. I mean, I'm, I'm really here because I got a free ticket. <laughs> uh, I've 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 like free miles on uh, KLM, and so I thought, well, I'll just fly to Amsterdam. Um, and I'm so cheap, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a very cheap person when it comes to that stuff. So if I'm going to spend money on my own ticket, right? Um, I, I fly coach. Okay, I'm not right. I'm not ashamed right. of it. I'm not proud of it either. It's just the way it is. But I have to fly back from Europe all the way to L.A. And wow, um, and that's that's a business class. That's a business seat for me. But that's also I mean I have to use miles. So I, I'm flying to Amsterdam, and then tomorrow I go to Budapest to hang out with John O'Sullivan. A husband of Ricochet's own, Melissa. He runs the Danube Institute there, and I'm going to give a little couple presentations in Budapest. And after that, my brother's having a big birthday bash for himself, and so it's going to be a little bit fun. But mostly, right now, it's just a, my lower lip is kind of falling off because I'm incredibly, incredibly jet lagged. Well, so what, what I will eat though tonight is probably a little herring, tiny little pieces of herring on brown bread. They do that really well here. Got because it. Because there's, there's nothing that really comes to mind in, 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 as Dutch. Cuisine. I remember walking around Amsterdam and seeing everything but pizza restaurants. Uh, you know, high, gyros, heroes, however you want to pronounce the Thai food. Everything except Dutch food, as though they themselves don't want to even eat it. Well, the problem with the canals, of course, is that in in mere weeks the water is going to flood over the canals and uh, drown the city because, of course, the Western Antarctic 
ice shelf is falling off. Climate change uh, is going to inundate us all. And apparently, Marco Rubio believes that this is uh, this is something that we ought to get behind. That the uh, conservatives, the GOP, have got to address this. Right? Is that how you're reading what Rubio says? Do you think that he's making a convenient uh, positioning of himself on this for, oh, dare I say, a presidential run? Yeah, Rubio made perfect sense to me, to tell you the truth. I, I don't – it's hard for me to imagine that he can rehabilitate himself in the minds of Republican primary voters between now and 2016 after his catastrophe on immigration where he went from leading all the polls in Iowa to dead last, single digits, low single digits in Iowa. Maybe he can. I doubt it. But on climate change – I believe what he was saying was perfectly sensible, which is he was suggesting that he had doubts when it was <coughs> described as a purely theoretical matter. And he was suggesting he had doubts when it came to computer modeling. But what he wanted to see was the physical evidence. Now, I haven't read it all in, through in detail, but this melting, the crumbling of a gigantic set of ice shelves in Antarctica, which it's not as if they're all going to melt like ice cubes tomorrow. This is something that takes place over a century. If there's physical evidence that's coming in, any conservative would pay attention to it. It's the, it's, it's the, uh, when global warming or climate change, or what is it called now? Climate disruption is the disruption yes. style of yes. term of art. When it's presented as a kind of faith, you must believe this because there's a total consensus on computer nonsense. Uh, Rubio was standing with um, uh, Dyson, what, what Freeman Dyson, the great scientist Freeman Dyson, who has kept saying, we need physical evidence. May, some may be coming in. Struck me as reasonable. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Yes, indeed. I was driving around North Dakota last week and I asked my daughter as we passed Agassiz School. I said, why do you think that school was named Agassiz? And she didn't know. And I said, that's because that's the name we gave the giant lake that used to cover this entire area a long time ago. <laughs> uh, where we are now was, I don't know. I thought two, it might have been a tennis school. No, two, three hundred feet under the water, Lake Agassiz, because, because it used to be different around here. I think what Rubio said was climate is changing, the climate is changing, the climate is always changing, which again – this always pulls at the absolute dead bottom of anything that anybody says people are interested in right now. I think you've got a better chance of, uh, of banging the drum on jobs and not inequality, on jobs right. and not climate change, on jobs, period, in the economy. Even the alarmists can't work up that much alarm anymore. I agree with you. Better to talk about jobs. Well, if you only have 100 years to move, um, you'd best get at it then. I mean, it's, it's, I think you can take maybe 10, 20 years putting ca wheeled casters on your chair and then you know, start to slowly move yourself toward the door. Maybe if you give yourself 150 years, you'll avoid being, being drowned by the tidal wave. It's preposterous. What is not preposterous, however, and this is interesting to me, I read the other day that the Washington Post, far from cratering and sundering and, and evaporating before our very eyes, has hired about 50 more people. Um, amazing what having Jeff Bezos's uh, bank account behind you will do. This, this will be fascinating uh, hey. to watch. Rob, and, and, well, I mean, that's hey, it's Rob. Yes, I'm back. I was there and trying to get on the Skype thing, and didn't. There seemed to be some confusion, probably on my part. the the uh, The Washington Post thing is a, it's a good sign. Look, the New York Times is um, is doing well. There's a solution for all of these um, newspapers, and that's to stop printing the news and to start printing features. The New York Times makes lots of money on its fashion and travel and food and 
uh, all sorts of its uh, its general interest, um, you know, non-political, non-partisan, non-axe-grinding uh, uh, subjects. That, that, listen, if I had a newspaper, that's what I would be doing. Well, the interesting thing for newspapers is the Washington Post is unlike any other paper really in the country. The only thing that's going to save newspapers in towns, well, like myself, uh, Minneapolis, is for them to go intensely local because you have a news team that knows the town and, can, and has resources that nobody else has. And what people really want to read about is what's going on in their community. They want to snap open that newspaper and, hear, and see about the fire, the murder, the kid who fell off the 11th floor window, that kind of stuff. The Washington Post, on the other hand, has a national mandate. Uh, n- n- nobody who picks up the post wants to see what happened in you know, the shooting in Southeast last week above the fold. That's not what the newspaper is about. But if they're hiring 50 new people, it, shows, it, it tells me that they're, they're interested in doing as, you know, far more than the post used to do. And when I was in Washington, it was a great newspaper. Yes, it had its biases, but it was well-written. It was incredibly well-written. It had a lot of fine, fine talent, and it was a big, thick thing every morning that was absolute required reading. And I don't right. think that's – I don't think right. – I don't know if that's the case anymore. We'll ask Bob when he comes on. And by Bob, of course, I mean Bob Costa, the newly minted political reporter for The Washington Post. But, of course, most people know him as the host of the beloved Beltway Buzz podcast. Let's welcome him back to the Ricochet flagship podcast here on this fine Wednesday. Wednesday morning. Hey, Bob, how are things in D.C.? Hey, great to join you. We were just talking about the Washington Post adding staff as a sign of, uh, of health. Uh, tell us about who they're hiring. This is before we get to the, the, the nuts and bolts of politics. Who, where are their, hire, their, their new acquisitions aimed at? The digital, the print, the both, the local, the national? What, you know, what is Bezos doing to the paper? Uh, it's hard to keep track, actually. There are so many new hires at the Washington Post. There have uh, been, I think, 50 hires uh, in, in recent months, and they just uh, heralded that throughout the newsroom. So there's a lot of energy at the Post. Uh, I think there are a lot of digital hires, a lot of people who are very familiar with the web, graphic design, uh, selling stories with pictures and interactive text, uh, as well as reporters uh, on the politics team. For example, we just hired uh, Katie Zesma. Uh, who covered New Jersey politics for the AP, uh, Jenna Portnoy from the Newark Star-Ledger, uh, Philip Bump from the Atlantic. So a, a, wider, a wide array of people. Uh, the question is, of course, whether or not you're, th- these, these new hires are on the male side, the, the, the chestless, whiny, up-talking neuters uh, who, who seem to infest <laughs> the medium these days, or the, or the old-style guys with a bottle of rye in the drawer who uh, have a good fist fight in the way out of the office one day. Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, Bob, you don't have to answer that, by the way. <laughs> is, is there any is there any company in America left where you can have a, a bottle of rye whiskey other than National Review? That was my favorite part of National Review. <laughs> there's a lot of good there's a lot of good stuff there, a kind of a Mad Men vibe. But unfortunately, at some of these more uh, corporate places, it's not as not as uh, not as fun in, in in that sense. Yes, hey, I, Bob. I, I hate Bob. Bob, it's, ahead, it's Rob. Rob Long. I'm, I'm actually speaking to you from from Europe. I, I, so I got two questions. One is just just because last time I saw you, you were at R, and I haven't haven't really seen you since you've been moved over to the Big Times. But are you having fun? Is it is it is it? It seems to me like to be a political reporter right now in 2014 must be a blast. Is it a blast? Oh, it's the greatest job. I love it. I cover national politics, campaigns, Congress. And uh, with a focus uh, in, in some respects on the Republican Party, 
I think for a reporter, the fact that Romney lost and it's led to a lot of soul searching in the GOP, some battles and tensions about how to move forward on policy, on tactics. It's a great story. It's a colorful story. Uh, there's a lot. It's, it's really more interesting, I think, in a lot of ways than the Democratic side of things. And I just getting out there on the trail and uh, I just was in Iowa covering the Senate race out there, covering Sarah Palin's speech. It, it, it's a, it is a blast, Rob. And, and so my second question is, has any, I mean, I, I don't, I'm trying to put this, I'm trying to figure out the way to put this, but you, you know what I'm asking. Did anybody ever say to you, hey, listen, we've got to make this coverage more fair? Never. No, no one's ever spoken to me about my personal views uh, at the Washington Post, which I think is great. I mean, uh, yeah. I was a reporter at National Review. I covered Republican Party and national politics, and I'm really essentially doing the same exact job at the Washington Post. And uh, I, look, clearly I came from National Review. Um, people, that's not a secret. It is what it is. I, I had a great experience at National Review, great people there. I really enjoyed my four and a half years there. At the same time, I think the Post, I, I give, I think the Post deserves some credit for not going to uh, the usual mm-hmm. minor leagues of sorts. They right. Not everyone, but Jonathan Martin, for example, the New York Times, he spent some time at National Review as well. So uh, you right. know, maybe Na- National Review is is a respected publication, regardless <laughs> of its regardless of its tilt. Bob, Peter well, Robinson despite, here. despite my despite my work for it, I guess it must be. <laughs> I love Bob, your work for it, Rob. Okay, enough of that nonsense. Bob, <laughs> Peter here. Your beat, your beat, your beat. Nebraska <laughs> yesterday, Tea yeah. Party candidate wins. This is good news or bad news for the GOP. Um, I think it's good news for the GOP. I think uh, Ben Sass is not only a Tea Party candidate in the sense that he was endorsed by Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, but this is an accomplished former Bush official, former assistant secretary of health. He's eloquent. He's endearing on the trail. I, I think he's almost more of a political talent than Cruz in a sense of being engaging, personable. Cruz is, but Sass just has a certain charm to him that I think a lot of people like. So that's a big win. How is it shaping up generally? The question as of three weeks ago or four weeks ago was, will Tea Party, will the Tea Party win primaries, putting in place candidates who are so far to the right and so obnoxious that they're going to lose their races? Will the Tea Party doom the GOP's chances of capturing the Senate in November? How's that looking? I think that whole so-called narrative doesn't really play out in, in any race. You look at Georgia, Paul Brown was considered the Tea Party candidate there. He's made some comments about Obama being connected to the Soviet Union, uh, raised some eyebrows in Washington, became that kind of colorful Tea Party candidate. He's struggling in the polls. And you have David Perdue, a businessman, a Mitt Romney type in his persona uh, against Jack Kingston, an appropriator. They're leading the polls in red state Georgia. In Iowa, the Tea Party candidate, Sam Clovis, he's struggling to get any kind of traction and some money. And Joni Ernst, uh, who's been embraced by the Iowa Republican establishment, she's doing well. She's been endorsed by Sarah Palin. And then Mark Jake was a businessman, another Romney type. He's also he's leading the polls in Iowa Senate race. And you go across the country in Alaska, Joe Miller, the Tea Party favorite from 2010. He's struggling. Who's doing well? The establishment, Lieutenant Governor Meade Treadwell, the establishment uh, favorite of Rob Portman, Dan Sullivan. So. I think if, the, the narrative that the Tea Party could screw up the GOP for 2014, I, I'm not seeing it. So, so there's not a single Tea Party nutcase who's likely to win the nomination. Um, 
it, it, I, not that I see it right now on my radar. I mean, <laughs> okay, no, no next one, question. What yeah. about Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader? Is he in, He's not going to lose his primary. Is he in trouble in Kentucky? I think Grimes is going to have so much money, and she is. She has a winning personality, uh, and she's in her young, her uh, early thirties. She doesn't have a voting record. Uh, she's one statewide. This is a serious candidate. And I think the greatest asset for Grimes beyond her personality and her, uh, her appeal in that sense and is that she doesn't come across as very liberal. She doesn't come across as a progressive. And she's very – she's buddy-buddy with the Clintons. And if Bill Clinton goes in there in October, uh, that's going to be powerful. And I think McConnell right. – he, his numbers are hard there. His, he's, he has a hard negative in the mid-40s, which is hard for him to get rid of, and, and it's going to be a difficult race for him in some ways. Okay, so the last question before I return you to the good graces of Rob Long in Amsterdam, who's champing at the bit to get back at you. Call the Senate. I know I will, we will hope to talk to you many times bef- between now and November, but what's it looking like right now? If you said 50-50 Republicans capture control, uh, two to one they will, how, how's it looking? I think, I mean, Republicans need to net six seats. I think they're in line to, to get at least four or five. But I think Republicans are nervous when they look at a state like Louisiana. Landrieu is a tough competitor. All the energy interests back are down there. A lot of money. Daughter of Moon Landrieu. She's no pushover. And same with even Pryor in Arkansas. Uh, deep family roots in the state. Cotton's popular in Washington with conservatives, but he, he's not exactly storming ahead in the polls. I think eventually those races could trend to the right. But if Republicans can't win in Arkansas and Louisiana, this idea that they're just going to automatically sweep six seats, it's, it's, up for, uh, it's up for question. So what you'd say pick up four to five right now, but control remains very much in doubt. That's right. I think for exactly. I mean, you look at someone like Tillis in North Carolina. He seems poised to beat Hagan. And you see in, in some other more red states, uh, Republicans are going to do fine. But uh, there's still some uh, definitely some toss ups. OK. Presidential. I'm waiting for Rob, who seems to be Rob is in Amsterdam. I know because he sent me a note. He wants back in. But now he's having trouble with Skype. So I get to keep you for a while, no, no. Bob. Oh, you, Rob get, you, is get there? One more, you get one, Peter. Oh, I get, you get one. one. All right. Oh, you're wait. Oh, you're yeah. metering. I'm on a meter. In that case, I'll talk fast. You're on a so, meter. Presidential politics, really briefly, we were talking for a moment before you came on, Bob, about Marco Rubio, who appeared on the uh, chat shows, the television shows over the weekend, said he he considers himself ready for the presidency, uh, made some comments about global warming that sound as though he's trying to position himself as a reasonable – the man is running for president of the United States and yet – because he backed the huge immigration, uh, the, 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 the omnibus immigration reform bill that passed the Senate but died in the House, his numbers tanked among likely Republican primary voters. Does he have a chance of rehabilitating himself in Iowa, where you just visited, between now and uh, 2016? It's going to be tough for Rubio. Uh, very difficult. I think a lot of the reason he's doing some of these early moves is he's nervous about Jeb Bush. It can't be Bush Rubio campaign in the same race. His people know it. Bush's people know it. And if Bush keeps moving towards a run, I think Rubio is going to be in a, uh, have a difficult decision to make. But I think immigration hurts him in, in, in a deep way. Uh, and he's trying to talk up climate change and, and his position on that and, and other things. Is it enough to, to push over someone like Cruz or, uh, or, or Mike Pence or Scott Walker in Iowa? So that's, I, I don't think so. And I think where, does, where else does Rubio play? Does he go up to New Hampshire? Maybe, but that seems like Rand Paul territory. Does he wait to Florida and South Carolina? South Carolina doesn't like his immigration position. So I think in some ways maybe Rubio's playing for the number two slot. Uh, um, but uh, in terms of really catching momentum, you would think with the, the, the indecision of Bush, 
with Christie's problems, Rubio could become more of that hawkish establishment favorite, but it just hasn't happened. Hey, Bob, uh, this is Rob Long again. I, you know, and I've got, I have to follow up on that. Uh, Jeb Bush gave a speech at the Manhattan Institute two nights ago, and it was, from all reports, extremely well-received. Uh, it's a lot of money in that room, Manhattan Institute. There are a lot of people in that room saying he should run. Um, and that there's a, almost an equal number of people saying, um, great guy, smart, terrific leader, has all the right ideas, uh, would be a disaster if he ran. How do you, how would you parse those two? How would you, how would you balance those two competing interests? I mean, stipulating that he's a great candidate and smart guy and a strong conservative and, and, and all sorts of terrific things, but nonetheless has a fatal flaw. Uh, I, I think Rubio has uh, he does have a, an almost fatal flaw in immigration. Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I meant, I meant Jim. I meant, I'm talking about Jeb Bush. Oh, Jeb Bush. Excuse me. Sorry. I think. Yeah. Uh, look, so I Jeb, think when, when you mentioned Jeb Bush's speech at the Manhattan Institute dinner. I watched that speech, right, right. and you, and you see someone who has hunched shoulders. You see someone who's a little rusty politically, and you see someone who's not identifying with the conservative movement in any way, not even trying to. He, he does connect with people like Russell Moore, the Baptist uh, minister, uh, head of the Southern Baptist political arm, and, he, and he's doing a speech in Grove City College, a Christian college, this weekend for commencement. But Jonah Goldberg, I think, was spot on with his National Review column today, where he talked about Jeb's out there defending George H.W. Bush's tax increase. He's out, he's out there defending his father's record. And is that going to fly in a Republican primary in 2016? Doubtful. Right, right. Well, that was my feeling too. Although it was everybody I spoke to who was in that room, um, they well, were he is a talent, right? Check. He is a talent. I mean, he is. Even though he's rusty, this is someone who has a a, a two-term record in Florida. That conservatives and National Review once put him on the cover multiple times. And right. uh, I mean, it, this is someone. It comes with the most powerful family in Republican politics. It would be a natural fit for a lot of these donors who have uh, become a little. They're starting to squirm about Christie. So as much as he has a lot of issues and asterisks, mm-hmm. he's someone who could still waltz right to the front runner position in the in the race. I think. Is Christie done? Okay. Yeah, uh, I think he, I think he is in some yeah. ways. But there is going to be that inevitable Christie comeback tour, whenever that is. Maybe it's in six months. Maybe it's in a year. But it's going to happen. And <laughs> Bob, this every- is what I love. You're so good. You can write the stories before they happen. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me, let, let, uh, so I got, I got. I have one last question, Bob. I'm sorry. I just want to if I could keep. What? So uh, going back to Nebraska. So we see what Sass has done in Nebraska, and people keep calling him a Tea Party candidate. But you could easily say he's just an establishment candidate who's got Tea Party credentials. Help me out. What in 2014, 2015, 2016? What exactly is a Tea Party candidate? I think it's style. It's 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 tactics and strategy and presentation. I mean, look at Ben Sass, Tea Party candidate. Ben Sass work for Bush uh, is polished, but it's more just the way he right. went against McConnell. McConnell was very unhappy with the way Sass on the trail in the primary was using McConnell as a punching bag, and so McConnell actually ended up backing Shane Osborne, Sass's opponent. And so it's really. It, a Tea Party person now is someone – I think a good way to understand who a Tea Party person is is ask them how they feel about the government shutdown. Most Republicans will say we understand the reason why uh, there is a need to defund the health care law and make a push for it. But the way it went up, they went about it, if you cheer it, you're likely a Tea Party person in the way you 
the Republican Party should strategize and divide a government. If you have questions about how the Republicans and Cruz handle the, handle the shutdown, you're likely not a Tea Party person at this point in time. Hey, Bob, Peter Robinson. So it's just, it's just okay. style. It's really yeah. a question of style now. Yeah, style and strategy. Bob, Bob, here, let me make an assertion and then you grade it on one to ten for truthfulness. All right? Here's, or, or accuracy. Here's my assertion. My assertion runs as follows Ben Sass is handsome, charming, well spoken, a product of small town Nebraska and Harvard University, and as a Rhodes Scholar, Oxford University. On every issue on which he has commented, he is in the same position as Ted Cruz or Mike Lee. That guy is Ted Cruz with charm. And as of today, he is one of the hottest talents in the Republican Party, even though he's six months from taking the oath of office as a member of the United States Senate. Rate that one to ten. Uh, ten being the most accurate, I'd give that a, a 9.5. I, I mean, Sass, I don't think it's totally polished as a candidate, but he's, he's almost there. He's 42 years old. I mean, this is someone who, who's so, such a fresh voice for the conservative side of things, and he's in a safe red seat. It's, he's going to be a powerful voice in Washington, uh, and, and just his, his demeanor is different than Cruz, and uh, it's different than Sarah Palin. It's different than Mike Lee. Uh, this is someone who has – he's almost like if you, if you made – if you turned Paul Ryan and, and, v, and if you, Paul Ryan was a machine and you could make him about five degrees more easygoing, that would be Ben Sass. Right, right. So, OK, I keep – Rob's going to be cross with me again. So here's my last question, Bob. Then you have to go – I mean Jeff Bezos ain't paying you to talk to us. So here's my last question. The Senate after this election, after January when the new senators take the oath of office, forget about whether Republicans quite get control or not. You've already said they're very likely to pick up four or five seats. We've talked about some of these younger candidates. None of them is a, tea part, is a nutcase, but all of them are thoroughgoing conservatives. Is it the case that for the first time in this administration and for one of the rare times in the last century, the action, policy action, interest, color, most fascinating figures, the action moves from the House of Representatives to the United States Senate? I think so. I really do. It's going to be full of personality, full of uh, vigor, young people, young conservatives in their 40s and 50s trying to get things done. It's going to be a, a new scene. It's going to be something McConnell's going to have to grapple with, and same with the president. Well, bless you for calling somebody in their 50s young. I li- <laughs> you're welcome, young you're welcome back, here. Young welcome back here anytime, Bob. Exactly. Lilac's <laughs> here in Minneapolis. <clears throat> I have a, a, a question when we're talking about 2016 and Bush again and uh, Paul Ryan again. How come nobody is talking about Rick Perry again? Well, because people remember Rick Perry 2012, and I think a lot of donors are skeptical. I think Perry has the energy to do it. I think he, I, I ran into Perry a few weeks ago, and this is someone who is comfortable with himself. He, he knows how to laugh at himself. He's not dumb, he, even though he came across like that sometimes in the debates. He's very sharp on policy. Yeah, I know. Well, that's just it. He's not dumb. And, I, and when he's, he's been not, through it before. So when he's not, helpful. Right. He's, it, when he's not hopped up on goofballs. I, I think he's a, a, a quite a charismatic character in a way that none of these other guys we're talking about are. 
And regardless of how you feel about Perry's positions here and there, if you're going to appeal to people in the middle, you've got to find somebody who can evince a certain amount of confidence and optimism and fellow feeling with the common American experience, who doesn't seem wonkery, who doesn't seem like a creature of the beltway. And and people may be remembering 2012, but I think there was a lot that he did in 2012 that was impressive and amusing. And I don't think he he made a fool of himself in the national stage. I just think that he had some rusty spots that he's probably shaken out by now. So are, are people then, are you saying, waiting for him to step up and then they'll pay attention to him or are they just shrugging their shoulders and saying we'll get around to him if he makes noises towards moving i think they're shrugging their shoulders however i think this is the best thing possible for perry uh he he is comfortable right now he's not in the spotlight the the best example of this is when i saw him at cpac all the other big politicians cruz ryan all of them they would stay backstage in the green room go in and out from the loading dock not really mingle with activists. Perry, he was like a 23-year-old college, college grad, mingling with all the students, hanging out at the booths, talking with everybody, sitting on the steps. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. This is someone who has been humbled by his presidential campaign experience, is the least arrogant political presence at CPAC, and is likes people. And that's actually a rare thing in politics. He seems to like people, and that's going to be helpful if he wants to make a very quiet rise in Iowa, South Carolina, and elsewhere. You're right. He likes people. And we like you, and we'll have you on again. And someday, if I'm ever in D.C., I would love to walk by a cafe and see you sitting with Michael Barone. It would be like Obi-Wan and Luke Skywalker. We sat next to each other at dinner the other night. He, he's the best. He, he is Obi-Wan, though. My gosh, the man knows the map like no one I've ever met. I know, but better that you're Luke than Anakin, because we all know how that one turned out. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Give my regards, Thank you, give my regards to the Washington Post. Uh, yeah, Perry likes people, and that's and that comes across. And when Rob mentioned Jeb Bush, I just, I, 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 I mean, the only way possibly that he could get some national right. traction amongst people who don't care is if he changed. I was thinking maybe if he runs his name backwards and, and says, you know, I'm I'm Bedge Sub. Which looks like looks yeah, like well, that some, would get you know he get the U- Ukrainian vote, right? Um, that, that's exactly uh, what I mean. And if and if he well, does, oh, you know, it's also bad for the country in general. We, we, we shouldn't be running Bushes and Clintons anymore. We should we should be moving forward. You know what? It just, um, it, almost, it just isn't going to happen. And you know what taught me that ricochet? Over the last six months, I've put up three. I like Jeb Bush a lot. And over the last – and a friend of mine – well, I'll tell you who it is. John Hoven, who's now a senator from North Dakota. But John was for almost 12 years governor of North Dakota. And John told me one time that if you ask the nation's governors who, was mo- who among them was most qualified to be president, 49 out of 50 would have said Jeb Bush. And, it would have, and the only person who might have had some doubts would have been Jeb Bush himself because he was so humble about it. OK. I put a post in favor of Jeb Bush on Ricochet and I got creamed. And you know what? At some point in politics, you just have to say it is what it is. If ricochet, conservative, big-hearted, generous people, if our membership, half of our membership, which is roughly what it was, says, I don't care. We've just had enough. It's a big country. Some new last names, please. I don't care how good he is. It's just – then it's done. At some point, you just have to say objectively, that is the political fact. It ain't going to happen. That's what I believe. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. And it's not it's not a referendum on his uh you know, intelligence, his leadership, his 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 incredible record running Florida, a big state. 
it's nothing at all. It's just that it's time. I mean, I just think it's time for the American culture in general to break the habit of these sort of um, it is a bad you know, habit. cultural elites. You know, it is yeah. a bad let's, habit. Let's move, let's move on. Right. right. Well, speaking of speaking of bad habits. Yes. I have a habit of interrupting James's segues. <laughs> did we do it again? Well, I, I just put. Yeah, the ball we did it again. I, I don't even think we did it. Yeah, but did, but we did. I didn't know I was doing it. So now I now I, I will fall silent as James segues effortlessly into. Well, I can't because it was segment. broken. As a matter of fact, you just interrupted me explaining how you had interrupted <laughs> my segue. I was I was placing I was placing the ball on the tee, turning around actually oh. to the to the caddy to request the club. <laughs> At which point, a giant stork came in, picked up my caddy, and deposited it somewhere else on the other side of the golf course. Well, well how, how's your lie at this point? Uh, now that it's somewhere else. Um, oh, I'm having a great time. I'm having a wonderful time. That's, that's my lie right there. Actually, uh, no segue. Just going to grind all the gears and tell you flat out that the podcast brought to you by Encounter Books. You know that. And you also probably know that this week's featured title, this month's featured title, for heaven's sakes, as far as we know, this year's feature title is Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regime by Michael Rubin. Uh, could be more timely. Now, if you've been listening over the weeks, you know what this is exactly about. I don't have to read the praises to you. You can, you can read it along with me. We all know that the government, the State Department, as currently constituted, looks at bad guys around the world and says, oh, we got to talk. Mm, we really got to talk. And that those governments, uh, looking at a supine State Department and administration that wants to talk, says, what are we going to get out of these guys? Because we're going to roll them, but good. That's right. We reward bluster with opportunity. They stomp, they glare, they pound the table, and we say, what can we do to make them happier? Where does this work exactly? It doesn't work anywhere. Okay, that's why Pyongyang, Tehran, Islamabad, all these guys have our number and the process of holding talks we think is more important than results. And they know it. So if you want to study up on this, so you've got something to say for your friends the next time you get together and they say, well, you know, at least at least at least we're talking to all these groups. We should talk to the Taliban. We should talk to Boko Haram. Ha! You'll get this book for 15% off the list price if you go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code Ricochet at your checkout. And uh, that's good for any other book as well. We have to thank Encounter Books for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast, before today and in the weeks to come. And show your appreciation by going there. And, and look at the rich, broad catalog that they have, too, because I get these, I get these uh, pamphlets from, from, uh, from Encounter telling me what they've come up with in the last you know, 48 hours. And it's just astonishing the amount of stuff that they have. All right. Well, our next guest is Rick Wilson. He's one of the top political consultants in the Republican Party and uh, one of our most popular contributors as well. You can follow him at Twitter. At at the Rick Wilson. That's uh, that's one word, I believe. Uh, Rick, we were just talking to Bob Costa. The general uh, opinion among all conservatives of every stripe is that Jeb Bush is a, is a mortal lock, and he's the guy that we got to have. Uh, <clears throat> right? Um, well, uh, as I as I noted when the Chris Christie uh, brouhaha uh, first emerged, that the that the conservative. Uh, um, Movement folks and the money folks were going to diverge very rapidly on their choices, and that's exactly what you've seen, is that, that Jeb is the comfortable guy who, who knows how to sit in the boardroom and not put his feet on the table. They like that a lot, and they're very comfortable with his record as a governor, and they are flooding the zone because they move as a pack. They always move as a pack, and, and right now Jeb is the, uh, is, is, the, is the guy they're running toward. Is there any? Um, is there any? However, aware? the the enthusiasm for Jeb at the grassroots is somewhere between 
um, so, so, somewhat less enthusiastic than the, uh, than the money people. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> are, are are they aware that making that that giving Jeb Bush the air of inevitability will will justify every single suspicion that the grassroots has about the people who are running supposedly their party? Um, the, the 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 problem for the money guys is that that they are so. It isn't just that they're hostile to the grassroots, and some of them are. Some of them are overtly um, um, hostile to conservative uh, movement folks. But a lot of them just don't think about them. They, they literally are in this game that they play with one another where they want to be an influential money person. It's a strange social dynamic. And, and, you know, I know these people. We raise money from them and with them and work with them all the time. And they're, many of them are very smart guys. But there, there's, a, there's a conceit there that's very often, I'm a billionaire. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, uh, I, I'm a private pilot, but if you put me behind the controls of an F-16, the chances are I'm going to end up in a smoking hole somewhere. OK. And a lot of these guys believe that their that their that their faculty for making money translates into the into sort of a political uh, judgment about who should run for president and how they're going to fit. And they, they tend to take some very shorthand sort of PowerPoint depth, um, uh, you know, strategic decisions that aren't always consonant with what's happening in the actual, you know, the actual world of politics. Well, why are these guys conservatives or Republicans in the first place? What are their ideas? What do they want? Well, look, a lot of them, a lot of them emerge from sort of an entrepreneurial background. And, and I will divide them into two, two separate chunks. Um, the guys who aren't on Wall Street and in the finance world essentially are entrepreneurial a lot of them come from the energy sector, the contracting sector, um, you know, regional banking. They're smart guys. They, 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 they came up from middle-class families. They went to state schools. Um, a lot of the Wall Street money guys want something very straightforward. They want continuity. They want a continuation of QE till the universe, you know, cools. Right. They want right. uh, they want to keep the, the, the machine that, that has been maintained by Barack Obama uh, on Wall Street, which is the one signifier he has where he can point and say, oh, the economy's doing great right there. They they love that. These are guys who are very empowered by that. It's a rent-seeking behavior. Um, and so they're not particularly conservative um, in that regard. But they, they, they are, you know, small R's in the, or, or, or R's in the sense that they, 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 they believe that government isn't always the solution, but they want government to tweak their, their part of the market so that they can continue to uh, to prosper. So hey, Rick. Rick there's a big Pete, divergence between the two sets. All right. We've done one of your fellow Floridians, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio. Is he running for the vice presidency? What's he up to? Look, uh, I think Marco in the in the last few weeks has demonstrated like, two things. One is that he's got a very wide portfolio of political and policy interests beyond what he sort of got in a little bit of heat with this last year on immigration. He has talked about foreign policy from Venezuela to the Ukraine um, to, to, to Egypt and, and to Israel in the last couple of months in a broader sort of traditional Republican foreign policy uh, strength uh, area. Not necessarily the picking up the neocon banner, as some characterized it, but that he's interested in those matters. He's talked about a lot of things on the economic front, including you know uh, some of these things where <clears throat> where we kind of got away from um, the promotion of prosperity and that great Reagan message of, of middle class prosperity, 
in the in the during the Bush years, honestly, where we just basically spent money. And he's he's trying to get back a little bit to that message. And so he's he's demonstrated a lot of bona fides in the last couple of weeks and months where this is a well rounded guy. And those of us who know Marco know that he's a well rounded guy. And you know, essentially he is and he's laid out an interesting marker where he said, If I do run for president, if I do choose to do this you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not looking for a fallback. I'm not looking to keep my Senate seat. If I do it, I'm going to go full throttle. And and I think he's definitely gotten a second look from a lot of conservatives who, who had kind of gotten riled up during the immigration debate. Um, Rick, and, and Rick hold on. I, I know, got nervous about it. Rick, I know Marco Rubio is, is a friend of yours and a fellow Floridian, so let me just take a good heart shot at it and see how you handle this. How can conservative Republicans trust a man who permitted himself to get rolled by Chuck Schumer? Well, it is Chuck, a question if you, if of you're judgment. Gonna get rolled, get rolled by, if you're going to get rolled, get rolled by the best. <laughs> and I will say that. Um, the, fact that, the fact that Marco pulled the plug and that is largely responsible for saying, hey, I'm not going to play this game anymore. Because, look, Schumer, and Schumer went to Marco and, and other Republicans and said, this is a transactional question. I am going to make a deal. We're going to do something that makes sense for everybody. Everybody's going to push away from the table with a win. Well, with Barack Obama and Harry Reid are in the room, nobody on our side is going to get a win. And, I, you know, uh, that is something I think that Rubio has recognized, that the culture around the Schumer deal-making thing is not transactional, it's ideological, and it's poisonous. And so you're not going to see a guy who's touched the hot stove there, um, you know, uh, do the same thing again. Now, look, we all recognize that the immigration thing is the worst possible, you know, calling card for, for, for the, for the next year. And nobody's going to touch it again for a long, long time. I mean, everybody, everybody came away from that with some egg on their face. You know, the, 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 the Rubio guys recognize that this is something in DC where you can't deal in good faith with Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid. You just can't, they, they, they are just not legitimate people to sit down and make a deal with. Should we talk about immigration? Yeah. Should we try to fix the H-1B system and, and enforcement and all these other things? Absolutely. Did they learn a hard lesson on it? You know, you get whacked upside the head with a frying pan, you're going to realize it for a long time. So, you know, I, I, I will tell you that, that many people have fallen victim to Schumer's blandishments, and, um, and, and, and he is a guy who plays a very long, hard game. And, you know, it happened. Mm. I don't think I don't think Marco Rubio regrets taking on trying to build an immigration bill that made sense. But I think that a lot of people regret trusting Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid that they could do something that was meaningful um, that wouldn't have turned right. into veto bait for this for for a president willing to demagogue his own mother if he has to. <laughs> well, that's that certainly describes Chuck Schumer. Hey, uh, speaking of demagogue, Rick, it's Rob Long. Um, I'm actually in Europe right hey, now. Rob. I, I, I was on the plane, and um, I'm, uh, yesterday the story broke. Can we just get dirty, down and dirty for a minute, speaking of dirty politics? Um, what's up with Karl Rove questioning whether 
former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has brain damage. Was that just kind of an off-the-cuff remark? Is there some <laughs> diabolical strategy there? As a, as a political sort of strategist and probably practicer of those dark arts, could you, could you just kind of un- unpack that for us, please? Well, I'm not saying that Rove's statement has any validity to the rumors of her violent rages. I mean, I, I wouldn't comment on that, obviously. But <laughs> <laughs> I have to, guys. Sorry. Um, yeah. Look, uh, I don't think that uh, – obviously the left has gotten their panties in a huge bunch about this um, in terms of, of, uh, of, of what Rove said the other night on Fox. And uh, this is something that, that – that, Hillary's people are past masters of. They recognize that they're going to be that, that they're going to that, that rumors will be pushed around quite vigorously, and and their pushback against Rove is hilariously ironic, given the Clintons' propensity over the years for dishing out stuff that makes what Rove said look like a love tap. I mean, they they get the joke. Everybody right. gets the joke. He was he was tweaking them, and. And the Clintons have been, if you go back to Bill Clinton running for president, where, you know, these guys have been notoriously uh, closed-mouthed about their medical records and notoriously right. um, uh, unwilling to be candid about things that are going on um, with their health. And so uh, what Rove did there was make a point that Hillary's going to have to face the same kind of questions that that the Democrats were shoving out it. Look, there were Democrats who were saying, we wonder if John McCain is mentally all there from the years of torture. Can we trust this man? Yeah. You know, are there things we don't know about John McCain's mental state? And, you know, these are the same, the same group of people, you know, maybe a slight generation before us who were, were constantly saying, you know, we've got a man in Ronald Reagan whose senility prevents him from being able to make good judgments about, you know, his finger being on the, on the button. These are people that, that, so, that play this game, and when it gets played back at them, they get pissy. Too bad. Way it goes. It's a big boy sport. But is it? But is it? A, do you think it's? Um, was it just a salvo? Was it a preview of coming attractions? I mean, look, she did have that fall. She was in the hospital for three days. Although I, I do love right. that he misspoke and said thirty at one point. I mean, is this how well, I mean, was this, or is this just kind of an off the cuff? Off the cuff head fake. I mean, should we get? Should we all those of us who are political junkies and love this kind of thing? Should we fasten our seatbelts for a bumpy over, night? I wouldn't overinterpret. I wouldn't overinterpret Carl's statement as some vast, um, um, long-term strategic plan. Um, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't overparse what he said. And and I like I said, I think the left is is fluffing themselves into a frenzy over this thing um, because you know. It, it, it is something that that they don't want to talk about anything to anything that that isn't on agenda about Hillary breaking the glass ceiling. Any other statement right, or comment right. is obviously racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic, whatever you know is <laughs> right. that you want to be have thrown at you that day. They're going to throw it at you. So, right. I um. Okay. You know, so can again, you can I ask you, know, you to switch? Yeah. Sure. No, I was going to ask you to switch a half a minute. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just assume, you know, just for a minute, you wake up and you're you're wearing different clothes, and you've got to you've got to give advice to Democrats facing what will probably be a very very unpleasant midterm election day. Yep. But it may not be as bad as everybody says, right? It could be sort of like a you know a, a, a replay of 1998 when everybody expected there would be this vast sweeping tidal wave of Republican support. 
in after Monica Lewinsky and all sorts of things, and it kind of didn't happen. So if, if you're on the Democratic side, what, what, would you, what steps would you be taking right now to mitigate November's coming, looming unpleasantness? If I, if I were the Democrats, I would, be finding, I would look for one race that I can try to turn into the exemplar of how they turned things around, how they saved it, and how Obama – remember, the, the crushing blow of Obamacare, they've done everything they can to build, defer that until after 2014. Okay, until after election day, right. they keep pushing these deadlines right. back and all these all these mandates back because they recognize that the political poison is still dripping into the IV on Obamacare. They're looking for one person, one candidate. They're going to try to say we saved, uh, just hypothetically, Mary Landrieu, um, or mm-hmm. Kay Hagan. Let's use Kay Hagan. We saved Kay Hagan, and she was fully for Obamacare. And here's the example, ever forward comrades, because they know that the legacy item of Obama <laughs> is one thing. And if it's Obamacare with, with, with one thing they can bluster a win for, and so you have Greg Sargent and all the cheering section for Obamacare saying, see, see, it's not poison for everybody, then it, it, it has an impact on the 2016 presidential race. It has an impact on, on, on down the line congressional and Senate contests, and, and it lets them have a single thing to cling to. A single, you know, piece of frosting right. to cling to um, in an otherwise fairly tough environment. But I mean, I'm I'm pretty bullish right now, and I'm I'm I, I, I think we're going to pick up two or three seats in the House. Um, I think we're going to get the majority. Um, you know, hey Rick, we have Peter so here, let me failed them in picking any crazy people. So yeah, that's right. Senate, so, right. So, okay, well that's good. We, we talked earlier with Bob Costa, Rick, and uh, yep, he sure. would he would agree that there have been no there's the Tea Party, the Republican Party has not nominated the primaries have not turned out such that anybody's going to be able to say, "Ha, look at that!" The Republicans are throwing away control of the Senate by nominating nutcases. No nutcases. In fact, Ben Sass in Nebraska, who won his primary, is a tremendously attractive candidate. So let me just ask you, very quickly, time time being tight here. Rob has to go off and sample Dutch brandy over there in Amsterdam. So let me just, <laughs> let me just ask you a, a couple of races here. Kay Hagan in North Carolina. Can we, can we take her? I think Tillis, I, we can take her. I think Tillis was just the right choice in this race. He is a guy that's very hard to turn him into the foaming right-wing demagogue. Um, he's got a lot of ties to the state. He's got a long record in the state. People okay. know the guy. Late breaking um, race, or do you expect him to build a lead early and hold it? I expect that to, to go fairly far into the into the weeds. I know there are a lot of money from the outside will be spent there in the last two months. Landrew, Mary Landrew in Louisiana. Luan, Landrew is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. She has supported Barack Obama. She voted, she voted for Obamacare. But Louisiana is a traditionally Democratic state, and that family has deep ties to the political structure. Can we take her out? If her name was Mary Smith, she'd be behind by 25 points right now. She is the she is the handmaiden of an incredibly unpopular agenda in a state where Barack Obama is incredibly unpopular. And it was traditionally Democrat before Katrina. The loss of about 500,000 African-American voters has really fundamentally altered the political landscape there. I think Landrews whistling past the graveyard right now. If Cassidy runs the solid campaign, we expect him to run. Okay. Arkansas. I confess that I thought Congressman Tom Cotton, who grew up in on a ranch, a farm in Arkansas, then went off to Harvard College, Harvard Law School, did not one but two tours of duty in Iraq as a member of the United States Army, went back home to Arkansas when he could have gone to Wall Street, 
back home to Arkansas and is now in his third term in the House of Representatives. I thought he would crush David Pryor, the current Democratic senator from Arkansas. But, Tom, that's looking like a toss-up. Toss-up. How come? That's the Democrats' bright spot in the, in the, in the system right now. Um, I suspect, however, that we're going to get back to the mean on where, on where voter behavior is in Arkansas, which is trending red. Um, and I do think Pryor has a lot more um, a lot more weight to be put on him in this campaign. Uh, by weight, you mean money? Step up his game. By weight, yeah, I mean we're, we need to throw some more throw, throw some more firepower at this guy. Cotton needs to step up the contrast, and I think as much as he needs to stay on Obamacare, he needs to widen the critique of of Pryor as a guy who's not really terribly effective for his state because he is a reflexive uh, you know vote for Harry Reid and Barack Obama. Okay, last question. From me, and I guess we have to let you go pretty soon, but last question from me for sure. Mitch McConnell, minority leader in the United States Senate. He has to his credit and what I consider an immense achievement, which is that during Barack Obama's first term, he held the Senate together so that Obamacare had to get through the Senate without a single Republican vote. He held his caucus together. He's a remarkable parliamentarian. Everyone agrees on that. And yet – and he has – uh, skated past his primary. It looks as though the, the, the primary uh, challenge to him is fading. But in the general election, that's looking like a very close race. How come? Because conservatives right now have a place to run to, and that's Devin. And that is going to be over soon, and they're going to have to make a choice. Do you want, as much as you don't love Mitch McConnell, do you want Speaker uh, Majority Leader Harry Reid or do you want Majority Leader Mitch McConnell? Do you want a, a Democrat in charge of the U.S. Senate when Barack Obama's two Supreme Court nominees come up in 2014 or 2015 and 16? Is that what you want? If that's your choice, then you're willing to set your ass on fire just to spite people. Yeah, that's one thing. But I think Republicans will come back at the end of the day. I know that my conservative friends will get very angry for me saying this, but Mitch McConnell is a much more crafty politician. And there's a role in this world for people who can carry a knife in the dark and take care of business. Mitch McConnell is one of those guys. He has done this to Bevin because Bevin and, and, and a lot of folks in the movement underestimated just what a vicious knife fighter Mitch McConnell is. I think Allison Grimes is also underestimating that. When Republicans, when the primary is passed, I think the party will unify. They will recognize that this is a guy that they don't have to love, but they have to respect. And, and he's going to bring he's going to bring the same kind of vicious, um, you know, ability to tear somebody apart to Grimes. And then when he's in the majority again, you know, I, this is not a guy who's going to like suddenly carry water for Barack Obama. No, the majority right. That's an insane yeah. thought. And, and it's frankly, you know, incredibly disingenuous of a lot of people to make that argument that that he's somehow some sort of, you know, fellow traveler of the, of the George Soros Barack right. Obama left. It's insane. Um, and like I said, people like Bevan, I get it. He didn't put the campaign together he needed to put together to beat Mitch McConnell. That's the bottom line. And if he had, great. I'd be vocally and, and, and loudly supporting the guy. But right now, Mitch McConnell is, is on track to win this primary. There's not a lot of, uh, of folks that are, that are going to go in there right now and now to rescue Mitch in six days. It's going to turn this race around. You know, what? and when 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 Republicans have one guy to get behind, I think they're going to get behind him. And 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 the important thing is, you know, we need every seat. This should not be a lift for us to win this seat in the general. When we get unified, we can win the seat again in the general. Well, of so, course, it's easy to knife wow. someone in the dark 
when your opponent's ass is on fire. And that's the image I'm going to take away from uh, our conversation. <laughs> as, well, as well you should. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. That we'll see like you. That's a writing prompt like that I'm going to use yeah. someday. We'll, yeah, thanks, that's a, Rick. That's Sparta politics right there. We'll see you on Twitter. <laughs> and, and we'll see you at ricochet.com. Thanks for being with us in the podcast today. Thanks, thanks, thanks Rick. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You know, I've been hearing a lot from Tom Cotton because he's a regular guest on the Hugh Hewitt Show. And it's not just about Obamacare. He's, he's, he's good on military matters. He's really good on military matters and is pretty schooled on what has been done to our armed forces over the last few years, what our capabilities are, what our readiness is, and how we need to pump more money into that. Now, one might say, however, that that we really don't need to have the military that we had in the Reagan days because, as Barack Obama pointed out, you know, it's a different world. Russia is no longer our number one geopolitical foe. We've got ships. We don't need all those nuclear missiles. And we have something else in our arsenal, really, that no other generation has had before. And that's the power of a fully operational hashtag that apparently we can achieve <laughs> the, uh, the whatever we want to do by putting words together without spaces and prefacing them with the, uh, with, with the hash mark. Now, the first lady this week tweeted out a picture of herself looking very, very – using the expression that she has when she catches uh, her husband smoking a cigarette, I think, uh, in the garage. A really glum look holding up a piece of paper, which you never do on the internet. Never, ever hold up a piece of paper on the internet ever because people will erase the words that you have and put in words that they want. But she used the hashtag bring back our girls, this expression of utter and complete inability to do anything, to influence, to move, to act, to, to, to struggle, to win, simply by stating this purpose, this point, revealed that, that, that really the hashtag diplomacy that they spoke of, and of course the State Department was guilty of this too, we stand with Ukraine, that they actually seem to believe that's, that the equivalent of slapping a free-to-bet bumper sticker on your car is, is sufficient to, 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 to accomplish what they want. It is, it is merely sufficient to preen promiscuously, not to do anything. Guys, what do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, look, that's that's always been the case. Look, it's always been the case with this social media stuff, and and the people who invent it and the people who use it, they always the plates are self-important. You know, I know people in the tech business who have come up with uh, some interesting way of parsing text or video. They go, "We're changing the world, man!" And uh, everybody who you know updates their Facebook status thinks that they're a celebrity now, or that they're trending, or whatever it is that. Uh, yeah, this is, but, but this is part and parcel of what this, the foreign policy of the Obama administration, which is to talk a lot, right. uh, to, and to and to make him, you know, to this this is the hashtag presidency, for for better or for worse, and I've, the, the, the context, problem of all of this is that. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just I'm agreeing with both of you, but Rob makes a very important point, which everybody, sure, Michelle Obama holds up a hashtag. She has a glowering face in the picture. Bring back our girls. The difficulty with that is that it's in – I mean in the first place, it's a little silly. It just seems to me to trivialize an important issue. Apparently, I'm wrong about that though because <laughs> there have been – all over the internet, people have been saying, no, 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 it shows sol- – fine. Suppose it does show solidarity. Give Michelle Obama the – put the best construction on it that you can. It still takes place in the context of her husband's administration and her husband drew red lines in Syria. The Syrians crossed them and he did nothing. He has now cut a deal with Iran, which Iran is already starting to flout, and he is going to do nothing. So when Michelle Obama puts up a hashtag that says, bring back our girls, the implicit question is, 
Oh yeah, mm-hmm. or what? Or what? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, what? Right. Suppose you could enter a time machine and put Twitter back in the 1980s. Ronald Reagan increases the United States Navy from 300 ships to 600. He he increases defense funding dramatically. He launches the Strategic Defense Initiative. The United States is on the move. If Nancy Reagan put up a hashtag that said, bring back our girls, the implicit message would be, or we're coming after you. That, that there's just, it just, it goes, when it's Michelle Obama, it goes kerklunk because of her husband, because of the lack of seriousness, seriousness behind it. Solidarity. Well, exactly. Uh, yeah, but, but, but that's the, also, also the problem with it. I mean, this is, I mean, I, w- I don't think it's necessarily unique to the Obamas. I think it actually, this is the Obama attitude here is the, is the sort of the natural, the natural endpoint or midpoint. I, I hope endpoint, but I, I fear midpoint to this kind of descent where every, where the most important thing you can do is spread awareness, you know, where we're all, we're all advocates and consultants and advocates and we advocate and we, and we bumper stick ourselves, but nobody actually does anything. Um, and I, I think that's that's part of the problem. Of course, bring back our girls is is a is a hashtag that is supposed to persuade a terrorist organization and a terrorist leader in Africa, in exactly. in, in civil war torn Africa, to to to, to return a uh, 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 human chattel that he has captured and is uh, currently probably abusing, torturing, or using as a as a, as a very it's a very best case scenario using as a bargaining chip. The well, idea just, that he's going to be persuaded. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. Just yesterday afternoon, as it happens, I happened to be at a little uh, reception where George Schultz spoke. George Schultz, former Secretary of State, he's now in his early 90s, and he is still a force. People were asking questions about negotiating and how you should handle Ukraine. And and George Schultz said, let me tell you about one of my early meetings with Ronald Reagan when I first became Secretary of State. I told the president about what it had been like to undergo basic training in the United States Marine Corps during World War II. George Schultz was a Marine. And he said, the master sergeant gave us our weapons. And he said, get to know that rifle. That is going to be your best friend. And remember this, don't ever point that weapon at anyone unless you're willing to pull the trigger. And George Schultz said, I said to the president, no empty threats. We can agree on that. And Ronald Reagan said, we agree completely. And of course, the Obama administration is one empty threat after another. It looks who had a piece. Somebody had a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Elliot Cohn who just said that this hashtagging, they look like children. They look unserious. And I have to say, when I saw 92, 93-year-old George Schultz yesterday, it just felt, yes, there was a time when grown-ups were in charge. Unserious or worse? Unserious, I mean, grown-ups are naive. I I, I guess I understand that as a a continuum. They're naive. They're not grown-ups. But I suspect it's actually worse. I suspect that the reason that the hashtag has nothing to do with those girls in Africa, they don't give a fig about those girls in Africa. The hashtag is there to appeal to a certain subsection of the American voter who likes this sort of thing and digs it and thinks that Michelle Obama's cool and that it's cool to be 
to have a hashtag and it's cool to like become a, a part, not even part time, part time implies that you're going to spend more than five minutes of your day, but a 30 seconds a day to spend that time adding, adding a hashtag to your, to retweets to your 200 followers. I suspect that it's not at all something that's naive. I think it's the lowest form of cynicism. They do not care about those girls. They simply don't care. In the same way, all right, this is a crazy analogy, and I'm jet lagged, so stop me. But in the same way, they don't care. They do not care about those Americans in Benghazi. They just don't care. Mm. The most important thing is to have a hashtag, uh, to have a have a have a have a groundswell, or I get the support they need from their little subsection of you know uh, of uh, of, uh, of acolytes. That's the most important thing. Everything else is completely completely expendable. I wouldn't call it childish so much as I would call it an example of the protracted adolescence that college provides people. Barack Obama has a college mindset. He's a college teacher. He's steeped in the culture. This is an example of that. There is no real world outside of the college itself, which is this strange constructed environment in which things like solidarity actually matter, in which things like raising consciousness is actually something that adults are supposed to do with their lives. So what you have when you want to express solidarity and you want consciousness to be raised is you have the appropriate act. You have a rally. You occupy an office. You issue some demands and perhaps the faculty administration will accede to your demands and you will get what you want, which is a new department of bearded lady studies to be added to the Metallurgical <laughs> Institute to redress a oh, historical wow. grievance that hasn't existed I'm into before. That, yeah. And so now that you have well, that, beard, you, you've, well, had, well, you've, had, you've had it, you've had that you have had that you've had an accomplishment so if you if you hashtag out this and it's retweeted and it gets traction that is the equivalent of the administration acceding to your demands nothing has changed nothing has been built nothing has been created but a little shift in the politics of this hermetically sealed world in which you live has has come to pass and that's all that there is this is like a government that believes actually the world is college and doesn't understand that there are Huns gathering outside the ivy walls who are more than willing to storm in, burn everything, take all the women, and run out with the gold. It's astonishing. There, Rob, you were going to yeah, say? Yeah, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know, James. I don't know, James. I don't think that they I, – I, I don't really think that they are naive. I think naive is – like I think that would be a step up. I mean, if you're naive, you know, there's a certain you could certainly you could admire people who are naive. I think they're cynical. I think it's a cynical thing. I think it's like a oh, this is something we can talk about now so that um, we look good. I I, I, agree. A, I, I, I agree. It's creepy and self-serving. I I, I mean, think those we, girls we can, could be you know. We can both agree. These are these are cynical people catering to a naive audience. How about that? Oh, I like that. Yes, I like that. That's exactly make it unanimous. Exactly right. Well, but 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 what's amazing is that everybody thinks that like you can you can do something without really. With, with, I, I was going to say without lifting a finger, but just by lifting a finger and pressing tweet, it's amazing to me that we actually believe or or people have been convinced that that's that that's going to be an effective use of your time and your energy. Uh, when, well, there, when there, there, it certainly isn't anywhere else in your life. You know? there, there, there's something more to this. Even the phrase, the way it's phrased, bring back our girls, is a rather sort of neutral statement, right? It's either asking Boko Haram to bring them back or asking the government to go, to go get them and bring them back. It, it, there's no blame there. There's just, just we want this thing to happen. There's no suggestion of the agency required to bring it about, as opposed to holding up a hashtag saying, right. go get our girls, as opposed to demanding something like that. 
But as you will find every single time you go into the comment section of anybody who's discussing this, the minute you start to point out, you know, there's a reason that these guys are doing what they're doing, and there's an ideological reason for it, and there's an ideological reason tied to a particular theology. You are flamed instantaneously, and then it becomes the equivalent of the old (laughs) anti-anti-communist debates of the 1980s, because you've just become one of those guys. And they can't get themselves... But you deserve that, James, for going into those comment sections in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can't you, you you can't argue with those people no all right well uh we are out of time we have got to, to run rob is going to be back next week to tell us i suppose all the wonderful things that he learned in budapest and uh, regale us with tales of john and his lovely bride melissa who we hope to see again on the national review cruise always fun always a great note of wonderful civility between the two of them and uh we would like to thank uh, mike Rapkoch for, uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly, for giving us the member post of the week, returning to support for the death penalty. And if we had time, we'd get around to that. Um, And it's a pity because I think within, if we had, say, three additional minutes, we could probably settle the idea and and the concept of of the death penalty right here. And then move on, of course. (laughs) Move on to euthanasia, which we could wrap up in 90 seconds. But alas, uh, run we must. This podcast was brought to you, as ever, by Encounter Books. Go there, enter that coupon code ricochet to get your 15% off. And it's not like you don't get something in return. You get a great book. And there are so many. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Peter. Thanks to our guests. And we'll see all of you with the comments at Ricochet 2.0. Join the conversation.
You're hot, he's hot, she's hot, I'm hot, you're hot, he's hot, she's hot. Real hot, real hot, real hot, real hot. Real hot. Real hot.